All right. Well, this morning, as you saw with the Fancy Pants video, we're going to be starting a new study in the book of James. Uh, I'm really excited about the book of James. It is hands down um, the most practical book in the entire New Testament. I mean, James, right out of the gate, is just ta- talking with us about how to live life. It's it's very nitty gritty. There's not much think deep thinking that's in it. It's mainly about this idea of the gospel in action in your life. It's your faith in Jesus and your confidence that he died on the cross for your sins and came back to life. It's it's James is flushing that out for the people that he's writing to. Now listen, I actually wanted to go, go through the book of James almost right out of the gate when I got here four years ago. I was, I was like, listen, I want to do James. I was really excited about it, but there was an issue, and there was a reason why I didn't want to do James right out of the bat. The reason I didn't want to start with James, because I felt like what we needed first was the book of Galatians. And you're probably saying, well, why Galatians? Well, if you were here four years ago, let me remind you, Galatians is all about what is the gospel and what is the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and Galatians, Paul is protecting the church from them trying to, to earn the favor of God. He's protecting it from saying, listen, God is really nice, but you've got to get to work. He was protecting against that. And he was saying, Jesus did all of the work for us on the cross. He was saying, listen, all of your effort and all of your, your doing, all of your goodness, none of it is good enough to measure up to make God happy. That's why Jesus had to come and die. And then he's saying, listen, God provided grace, like abundant grace and mercy for every single one of us to forgive us of our shortcomings. And not only grace for forgiveness, but grace so that we would have strength so that we would be able to actually live the Christian life, that we'd actually be able to obey the commands that he gave us. It's not just grace to be clean, it's grace to actually be able to obey. He provided the power and the ability for us to do what he's called us to do. That, that's why we needed Galatians. And here's why that matters. Because if we're not careful, we will jump into the book of James and we'll see all these commands. Do this, do this, don't do this. And we will start getting to work right out of the gate. And James, apart from a gospel lens, a gospel perspective, or a gospel foundation, if you read James without the lenses of the gospel on, it will turn you into a legalist that has to do a whole lot of work. But if you have a right understanding of the good news, you will read all of these commands and you will read all of these practical things and it will give you deep love for Jesus. You'll be amazed at his power to enable you to do the things that he's calling you to do. It'll make you love Jesus and his good news more. But you have to have a gospel lens on. So that's why I waited on James. So you're gonna see me constantly and repeatedly point us back to the gospel over and over and over again in James. Because James is the gospel in action. It moves us from theory about the good news to, to basically living everyday life with the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So, having said all that, let's jump into the book of James, okay? James chapter one, verse one. Uh, if you can turn your Bibles there or flip on your phones or however you're gonna do that this morning. James one, verse one, and we're gonna do a little background work here this morning. James one, verse one says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tw- tribes, Twibes. I said twibes. Did you pick up on that? Okay, that wasn't the microphone. That was all me. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Listen, uh, 
New Testament books, ancient Greek letters, start with the signature. That's the signature of the person that's writing. James. The question is, who is James? Who's this guy we're talking about? There are several James in the New Testament. Uh, there's only two that most people think this could be. The first James was probably martyred too early. Very early in the book of Acts, he was beheaded by Herod and some of the people in Israel. But the second James is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And this is this is a guy that grew up next to Jesus as a child. He saw him growing up. This would have been, Jesus would have been his older half-brother. He would have seen Jesus. He would have rejected Jesus while he was here. And at some point after Jesus came back from the dead, James said, now I believe. And he became a significant leader in the first century church in Jerusalem. Uh, so much so that most people think he was the lead pastor or lead elder at the church in Jerusalem. And that's a whole nother st study, but that means this, that, that James is probably the very first book written in the New Testament, probably around 45, 40 to 45 AD. It was written about 10 years or so after the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like this is one of the very initial books that was getting written. And when we see that thing, it's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus is who I think it is. It's written to the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me tell, tell you what that means. Uh, Acts chapter 8. If you don't mind, would you flip back to Acts chapter 8? Or you don't have to flip. I'll put it on the screen for you this morning. Early on in Acts, persecution breaks out to this almost all Jewish church. They're, they're almost exclusively Jewish, 99.9% .9 Jewish. And persecution breaks out. And in Acts chapter 8, look at what happens. And Saul approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Uh, so what happens is persecution breaks out and they start scattering all over the place. Actually, if you flip over, we're not going to do it right now, but in Acts chapter 11, you see it happen again. The persecution is still happening. and They're spreading further and further out around the world till they get to a city called Antioch, which is where that first church got started. If you've been with us in the book of James you know a lot about that. So here's what, here's what the book of James is. The book of James is Pastor James, and his church has been suffering persecution. They've been run out of town by people. They've lost jobs. They've lost loved ones. Some of them have been arrested by Paul. Some of their loved ones have been arrested by Paul. Some of them have been, they have loved ones who've been murdered because of being followers of Jesus, and they're scattering all over the place. And their pastor, James, decides that he wants to write a letter to his people who are suffering, who are spread out all over the place. He, he wants to make sure he's able to pastor them and shepherd them and take care of them. So let's see uh, how he's going to deal with this. And that reminds me one quick thing before I jump into what he's, where he's going to start with. Here's one of the reasons why I think this book is really helpful for us. In, in James chapter 1, James is writing to a church that is experiencing a rapid shift in their culture from very pleased with Christianity to very anti-Christianity. There's a moment at the very beginning of the church that the entire city of Jerusalem looks on Christians with great favor. They're like, man, these people are awesome. Like they're getting together, they worship God, they study the Bible, they're living pure and holy lives. What they're doing for the poor and for the widows, it's out of control. Like we really respect all these followers of Jesus. But within a few years, that turns very quickly to now they're saying, we hate these people, get them out of town, we don't want them around. And, and here's why I think that's practical for us. I think there's been a, a shift in the last several years in, a, in our basically culture stance towards Christianity. I don't want us to play the victim in this, but I do want us to recognize what's happening. 
There was a time in the 50s or maybe earlier where Christianity was kind of the standard of a good um, person in culture. Whether you were a real Christian or not didn't matter, but you went to church, you acted like a Christian, and that's how people knew you were a respectable person in the community. But eventually there was a shift that happened sometime in the 60s um, where that, that stance began, began to get uh, taken down a little bit. And Christians responded eventually in the 80s by creating what we would call the religious right and wanting to have inf- exercise influence and power in the culture of the time. So they, they, Christianity started shifting into this political movement in the U.S. It was very influential in that time. But as that was happening, people's view of Christianity was beginning to change. It was no longer the standard of being a good citizen in the U.S. And people began to be indifferent about it. So the church responded. They responded by shifting from being indifferent to being a place where they wanted people who were seeking. They weren't sure how they felt about the church. So let me come and check it out and see if I like it. And then the church continued to shift tactics. While some were warring on the culture, others were trying to create a space for people to study and check out Christianity. They were trying to be uh, more trendy and more accepting and uh, answer the questions that were being asked by the culture that was around us. And then the, the shift happened some more where the church began to say, no, we want to engage and engage with the culture, not just be a place for seekers. We want to be engaging with social justice issues and caring for the poor. And as that shift was happening in the church, culture shifted from being neutral to there's kind of more of a much more negative view of being a follower of Jesus right now. Um, they're not at the point where they're beating doors down or throwing us in prison, but there is a, a view of Christianity, especially a conservative Christianity that believes in what God teaches in the word that has a very negative connotation to it now. Um, whether you like it or not, or whether you recognize it or not, that's what's happening around us. And in the city of Tallahassee, we have a mixed bag. We have people that love the church and they're probably engaged in the church. We have people that are really indifferent to the church, but the number of people who would be very resistant to the church, that number is increasing. You, your neighbors, your coworkers, you need to know that, that the culture is shifting right in front of our eyes. And what I'm excited about in the book of James is James is ahead of the curve on that shift. Culture shifted very drastically, probably more drastically than we'll experience, but it's, it's shifted very drastically. We get to see how James is pastoring his people to deal with people who do not like Christianity or the church. I think that's going to be helpful. I think it's going to be helpful for us in this day and time. Okay, having said all that, so what's the very first thing that James talked about in James chapter one? Let's look at verse two. Out of the gate, here's how he starts. Verse two, he says this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Here's what he said, listen. He says, count it all joy, or another translation would be consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy when you meet trials of various kinds. He's like, listen, he's saying, listen, I know you guys are suffering. And right out of the gate, James addresses his people who are suffering and suffering a lot. And he says, listen, I want you to consider it pure joy when you meet all sorts of trials. That word various trials, it, it tells us, yeah, he is thinking about the persecution they're facing, but he's thinking about more than just that. Like we suffer in a ton of different ways. Sometimes we suffer when tragedy hits. And if you experience tragedy, you, you know that suffering is deep and painful. When we're suffering because a loved one has been sick or, or a loved one uh, just passed away or you're suffering financially because of losing a job or whatever's hap- happening at your work, you feel these extreme 
moments of tragedy where you suffer deeply and greatly. He's saying, listen, that part of those trials, the trials of persecution and the trials of tragedy, you need to consider it pure joy. Does it sound crazy to you yet? But he's not just saying the moments of tragedy. He's also saying the moments that are just kind of the everyday suffering that we all experience. That's the type of suffering you have when your baby won't sleep at night or when your car breaks down or your AC in your house kind of doesn't quite work. It's a normal everyday third world problems that we face that are inconvenient and difficult and hard. Listen, it's when the flu hits your family and you're all sick and you're wrestling with that. Listen, he's saying, listen, count it all joy. Consider it pure joy when you face all sorts of trials and difficulties. Now, I need you to think about that for a moment. Right out of the gate, the very first thing that James wants to say to his church people who have lost loved ones and homes and jobs and and financial well-being, who've been run out of town and are living maybe 100 miles away from where they grew up, the first thing he wants to say to his people is, Consider it awesomeness that you're suffering. What do you think about that? Maybe you're sitting there going, man, if I think for me out of the gate, I'm looking for a new church to join. I don't know if that's what you think, but that may be what some people think. Like it's, here's what James is doing. His, his biggest concern for his people is saying, listen, the first thing I want to talk to you about, I want to help you frame what is happening to you right now. You are in the midst of suffering and it's hard, and it's difficult, and I want to make sure that I help you think through suffering with a view of what God is doing in mind. I don't want you just to experience it. I don't want you to grumble. I don't want you to whine. I don't want you to give up. I want to frame it for you so you know what God is doing. That way you can endure this thing in a way that is God-honoring. He wants to make sure as, as a pastor, he doesn't just say, man, I'm praying for you, and I hope you do all right. He's saying, I want to help you think through what you're facing. So what does he tell them God is doing? He's going to pull them back and kind of give them a bird's eye view of what God is doing in this church. So what is God doing? What is it that gives us pure joy? Look at verse three. For you know, you consider it all joy when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says this thing, the testing of your faith. That word can also be translated the refining of your faith. It's actually in another passage in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1. Would you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1? It's a very similar verse as what James is saying, but this is a much older book. Peter's writing it to another group of Christians. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says this, again, to another suffering church. He says, in this you rejoice. Sound familiar already? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I mean, doesn't that sound almost identical to what we just read in James chapter 1? He says, count it all joy to meet various trials. And Peter's saying, listen, this is what's going to make you happy. Even though the trials stink and you're grieved by them, right? He's not saying you pretend like it's okay. He's saying, no, it's grievous. It's, it's painful. You don't like it. It's miserable. But you can rejoice in it. Why? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, real similar words, same word tested as tried. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Here's what Peter's saying, and here's what James is saying. Listen, one of the reasons you can rejoice in trials is here's what God is doing to you. He's refining, he's testing, he's strengthening your faith. That's what he's doing. Here's this picture Peter does of gold being refined by fire. Like Here's that picture that he's painting. If someone finds gold, what they're going to do is they want to refine this gold and make it pure so they heat it up and they melt it. And they get it pretty hot so that it completely melts. And as they melt it, and I don't know if they're stirring it, I don't know how they purify all of this stuff. I know as they melt it, all the impurities come up to the top and they melt it and they scrape off those impurities and they take them out. You don't get those impurities out unless you take the gold through the fire. And one of the things he's saying is that's one of the things that God is doing to you. In the midst of suffering, it feels awful. It feels like it's hot and painful and you want it to end, but he's doing us a favor where he's, he's peeling off the impurities that are in our lives. Listen, that, that's an awesome thing. He's like a master craftsman trying to make you and I into these masterpieces that are beautiful and pure and holy. And the way he does that is he puts us in the fire. It's, it's hot enough to melt us without destroying us. It's painful and it's difficult. I try to imagine what that's like. I don't, I don't want to be melted, and I don't want to be scraped on. I don't want to be stirred. I want it to be quick, but it can't be quick. It has to be slow. It, it, it can't stop, or he won't get it all out. He's going to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And the whole time, the whole time, he's pulling out those impurities in your life. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, that sounds pretty cruel. Like, I feel good enough. I'll just wait to the resurrection when I go to heaven, and then he can take it all out. I'll make it get it all done at once. Don't torture me for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of my life. Don't do that. Make it quick. Just be nice to me. Let me live on. I think I've given this illustration before. It's C.S. Lewis. He says, none of us would want a surgeon who you went to him and said, listen, you've got this cancer. You've got this thing. And the surgeon said, I don't want to hurt you, so we'll just leave it in there. None of us would like that doctor. But you know what that doctor has to do? And what it probably feels cruel and painful. He has to cut and tear and rip to get out the cancer. It's to give you medicine that makes you miserable and painful, makes you feel sick. But he's got to do that to get rid of the cancer because the cancer's worse for you than being comfortable in that moment. Listen, we would never call a doctor good that refused to treat illnesses that would kill us. And we can't say that God is good if he refuses to treat the sins that are in us that need to get pulled out. Like, listen, he's purifying us. Not not only that, when he puts us through the fire, there's this TV show. I think it's called Forge in the Fire. Any of you guys ever watch that? Okay. Yes. All right. I'm glad there's more than three people here. This crazy show, I don't know who these people are that apparently are blacksmiths in their garage or in their backyard. I mean, maybe that's you. I don't know. If any of you do that, I would love to come and watch it. But these guys go on the show to compete, and they've got to make knives and blades, and they get eliminated. Then at the end, they go back home, and they make these swords. And they got to make these swords just right so they pass all these tests, like cutting through ropes or watermelons or whatever else they're doing. And listen, you know what these guys have to do? They have to take that metal. they got to stick it in the fire, not just to purify it. They've got to stick it in the fire so they can mold it. 
They got to shape it. They, they need to look the right way. So when they put that thing in the fire, it's hot. It gets red hot. They've got to leave it in just the right amount of time. Not too long, not too short, right? And they bring it out and they beat the snot out of that thing with the hammer and stick it back in and over and again and over and in and out. Whack, 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 whack. Listen, if that steel felt anything, it would be the worst process ever. Well, but what are they doing? They're shaping it to be exactly what they want it to be. They're making sure it's strong enough so it doesn't break. They're making sure it holds an, an edge so that it cuts when it has to cut. And that's exactly what God is doing to us. He puts us in the fire. It doesn't just refine us and take out the impurities. It's supposed to make us moldable in his hands to shape us to be what he wants us to be. It's supposed to make us stronger, not brittle, so that we crumble when things come. It's supposed to firm us up and make us strong. That's exactly what James said. Look back there at James chapter 1, verse 3. It says, For you know that the testing or the trying or the refining of your faith, what does it produce? Steadfastness, right? That's a word we all use a lot. Another word you could say is it produces endurance. It gives you the ability to bear up underneath the weight of a load without collapsing. Here's what God is doing in us. He's, he's, he's pounding us and breaking us and molding us and purifying us so that we can have endurance to withstand all the things that will come our way. We, we become a much more useful tool in the hands of God if we've gone through these fires. There's a guy named A.W. Tozer. He has this quote. He says, It is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. Let me say that again. It is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. And I think that's one of the reasons we run into some problems with churches nowadays and leaders collapsing. These guys go up without their character being shaped and formed. They fly through the ranks because they're gifted and talented, but they haven't been through the fires of life that have broken them and melted them and hurt them. The result is a person that's gifted without character and they crash and burn and they destroy people with them. Well, we got political leaders at times. They have no character, no integrity on both sides of the aisle. And what we need is for God to use people. They have to be, go through the fires where God molds us and shapes us and purifies us. Church, I want you to know this. If God is taking you through the fire, he's preparing to use you in awesome ways. Some of you have been through fires you, we can't even imagine. And you feel like you walk with a limp. And I'm telling you, there's potential here, not just that you walk through a limp, but God is saying, I'm getting ready to use you in a powerful and strong way. The most broken among us may be, just may be the most powerfully used by God among us. There's this other crazy poem that uh, I think they read it in church all the time. I don't know where I first did this. It's anonymous, but I'm about to get poetic. We got fancy videos. Now I'm reading a poem. What is going on today? Let me read this poem to you. It says this, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial, shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, 
how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and which every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. I don't want to read that poem again because uh, it'll get me tongue but it's this phenomenal picture that that's what God is doing in our lives, you guys. When, you, when you're in the fires and when you're suffering, and whatever that suffering is, it may be kids not sleeping at night, it may be a marriage on the rocks, maybe chaos at work and suffering, it may be health issues, maybe the loss of a loved one, or a million things in between. God is like a, a perfect craftsman molding you and shaping you, and it hurts, and it's hard, and it's painful, but he's trying to make you and I into masterpieces. He's doing it for our good. Though we may not see it and understand it, he's producing in us endurance. Now that endurance, it makes me laugh. My wife and I a few weeks ago were having a conversation about endurance and how our capacity has been stretched. I don't know, do you ever look back and think about the things that once broke you and you're looking and say, man, that was easy. Anybody here ever done that? Okay, good. That's definitely what's happened. My wife and I, uh, we, we were looking back and we, I forget what was going on. Someone was watching the kids except for the little baby. If you don't know, we've got five. We're insane. The fifth little baby, uh, we were hanging out with just that one little guy. And we're like, man, this is awesome. There's only one little baby here and he's so quiet. Like, it feels like a vacation. And as we were having that talk, we remembered that very first time we brought home that very first baby. And those of your parents, remember the first time you brought home the baby? Like everything is chaos. Every diaper, good night. Those first diapers, you have, you feel like you just walk into some kind of like hazmat situation. You don't know, maybe you didn't, but I did. I mean, it is disaster, those first diapers. Like if this is what diapers look like for the next three years, we need to potty train that kid today. Like it is out of control. Every cry, you've got no idea what's going on. The sleeplessness. Oh, the sleeplessness. Like I remember when we first brought home that very first little guy. Um, I we've been home for a couple of days, and I think Kim's parents came over to watch Adib, and we got in the car just for a five-minute drive. Any of y'all do that with the first baby? Do you remember what that first five-minute drive felt like? Guys, it was like we were shell-shocked. Like, like it was like we were Vietnam vets that had just gotten in a POW camp. Like, I mean, we were just like, I would just what just happened the last three days. Like it, it felt like that. And what we were looking back on is how much God had stretched us in that process. Like now one baby at home feels like vacation. Whereas before it felt like I was in Nam. Like it was, it was brutal. All right. And if you don't know, if you know, you know, I'll just say that. Um, it, it, and yes, having five kids is like being a prisoner of war. In case you're wondering, I won't even pick that up anymore at all. But now here's, Here's the thing I want you to see here. One of the things that God is doing as he hammers us is he increases our endurance. He gives you steadfastness, your ability to bear up under the difficulties of life. He's growing you and stretching you, and it does not feel good, but he's doing that. But but endurance, as good as it is, is not the main goal. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That that phrase perfect also means mature. Here's his goal of what he's trying to do in us. He wants us to give us endurance, and he wants that endurance to grow to maturity and Christ-likeness. Like, 
He wants you to grow to be spiritually mature, not just make you tougher and and grislier and make you be able to endure a lot of difficulty. He wants more humility and more grace and more mercy and more maturity and more love and more joy and more peace and more patience. He wants more Christ-likeness in us, not just endurance. He wants godly character, maturity like he says there. Or he says that perfection. He, he wants to make it so you look more and more like Jesus. Now, listen, I want to show you one thing that stood out to me. Look at verse four again, the very first part. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Here's what he's saying. Here's what stood out to me. Hey, let endurance work its way all the way to the end so it has the maximum impact. Here's what that tells me. It tells me something interesting there when I think about that. James is concerned that he wants them to consider it pure joy when they, when they experience suffering because God is doing a work. He's given them endurance. But you need to let that endurance have its full impact. Here's the implication. If you don't let endurance have its full impact, you won't get maturity on the other end of it. There's a way for you and I to respond in trials that doesn't produce maturity. You waste the suffering. You experience the suffering, you go through it, and all you get on the end is endurance. You can handle five kids instead of one now, but you don't have maturity. There's a way that we're supposed to respond to suffering that causes endurance, and there's a way that doesn't. There's a way that just or, that causes maturity, and there's a way that only gives you endurance. I kept thinking about this. I was trying to chew on it a little bit, and we'll unpack this more in James, but here's what I thought of immediately. Uh, you're gonna have to know some of the Bible for this, but I started thinking about how Israel responded to God in the wilderness. Y'all remember those Old Testament stories? They had a whole lot of difficulty. They uh, didn't have food, they didn't have water, and they were in the desert. It was great, perfect time, right? So God's providing them for them in crazy ways. But the the result was Israel did not respond in a way to that suffering that produced maturity, did something else. Let me give you a few ways that they responded. And these are ways I think we can stop the process of maturity. The first one is escape. They kept saying, we got to go back to Egypt. Everything was better there. Get us out of this desert. I don't care if God God is here. I want to get out. I don't ever want to go back. It was easier in slavery in Egypt I'd rather have that than this. And so sometimes we can have this escape mentality that wants us to get out of suffering instead of being with God in the midst of suffering. They also grumbled. They would say things like, you just brought me here to kill me, Moses. That was your your plan all along? You didn't have a better plan than just follow God through the desert? (laughs) Like, okay, they got a pillar of fire in front of them. They've seen God open the Red Sea. They've seen the plagues. And they're mad because Moses' plan isn't well thought out enough. And they're saying, really, Moses? We're so sick of you being so stupid. You brought a million people here. You didn't think about water, bro? that's That's the conversation they're having. There's grumbling that's going on. And it's not just they're saying, hey, this is hard. They're having this grumbling that's saying, it's not just this is hard. We hate this. We hate it. We don't want to be in it. So mad you brought me here. Why would you do this? And that that whining and grumbling turns into bitterness. It's your fault. They would even say, does God hate us? He wants to kill us. They also did this weird thing. I couldn't help, hopefully I'm not drawing too much of something out of this, but one of the things they did in the desert is they made a golden calf. Y'all remember that story? They said, 
listen, Moses isn't here right now and we need something to worship and God's not good enough. Let's throw all our gold together and see if we can make this awesome golden cow. Why a cow? I have no idea. Okay, they wanted to worship a golden cow. So they worship this thing and they're as happy as can be when they've got the cow that they want to worship made in gold. They can do what they want. They can, they can give themselves all the credit for it. Here's what I think. I think that sometimes we experience suffering and we get endurance and the end result is this type of self-worship. There's this thing that happens. I don't know if you've met someone like this. This, this is the person that They've gone through suffering, and when you're entering the same thing, they don't show you mercy and compassion. They show you disdain and like, come on, I get it, you can do it. You gotta just suck it up, man. Like They're very, very lousy comforters because uh, their suffering produced arrogance and self-sufficiency in them. It, it made them think, I got through it because I'm strong. I got through that because I had a plan. I got through that because I'm awesome. We would never say it that way, but that's, that's the implication. And you are acting like this is so tough. It's easy. Anybody can do it. They're miserable comforters because they're self-worshippers. They're self-sufficient and they're arrogant. And I think there's a better way to respond. If, if we respond in a way that looks, and, looks to God and trusts him, we'll pick that up in the, later on in James, I think it will produce maturity in us. Let me tell you a story. There's a guy named Job. This is the other guy I thought about in the Bible. You remember the story of Job? Super rich. Tons of kids, tons of all sorts of cattle and sheep, tons of servants, tons of money. Like Job, super, super rich and super, super good. This is a guy that honored God, had character and integrity, took care of the poor. And remember Job, there's this moment and the Bible paints this brutal picture where he's sitting in his tent and there's this knock. You remember this? It's that was an awful knock. Well, just trust me, that was a knock. Tents don't sound like that. It's an amazing tent. He was rich. It was metal. It was fantastic. There's a knock, and all of a sudden, this servant comes in out of breath, panic. Like, listen, it, it was awful. We were out there with all of the cattle, all the cows, and all of a sudden, these guys raided, and they took everything, and they killed everyone, and I'm the only one that made it. And while that guy is still talking, listen, it was, it was awful. I was out with the sheep. Dude, these other, this other group, right, they took everything and they killed everyone. I'm the only one that made it. And while he's still talking, someone raided, took all the camels. They're all gone. Everyone's dead. I'm the only one that's left. And while he's still talking, there's another knock. And he's like, listen, I was with your kids. We were having dinner. Tornado came. They're all gone. I'm the only one that made it. And literally in a matter of three minutes, he lost everything. He lost all his family. He lost all his stuff and all his finances and all his security, everything. And then the dude gets boils. Gets boils from head to toe. And he's sitting there and he's mourning. Listen, I, I want to read his response. Verse 20. Then Job arose. No, sorry, it's Job chapter one. I, in case you didn't know that. Then Job arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. He, he's there totally mourning. He, he embraced it. He didn't present it as easy. He didn't have some shallow, rehearsed thing. I don't know if you ever experienced that in church. Like you're going through a tough time and I'm, I'm doing better than I deserve, which is true, but uh, it, it, it wasn't this power of positive thinking stuff. He embraced the full grief that was happening, just sitting there shaving his head. He's on the ground. He's in mourning, and look at what it says at the end of verse 20, and he worshiped. That's crazy. He 
his response to losing everything was, God, I'm going to worship you. I trust you. And he said this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. Listen, I, I never really had anything anyways. I'm not going to take it with me. I didn't have it when I came in. It's just stuff. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. He, he does this. Look at this next place, phrase. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's, what I, here's how I would try that. God, this is hard. I, I just, this is painful. Just, it's difficult. I'm broken but you're good. I know that you're good. I know that you're strong. You did this, and I know your character. I'm just, I'm trusting you. You see, Jay, you see Job asking questions in the following chapters. I don't know why he did it. I'd like to know. I wish he would tell me. God never gives him an answer. God just shows up, and he shows Job how strong he is, and Job's like, I take the question back. Now, I, I can't even ask. You're big, and you're good. Let's just leave it there. He just worships him. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Listen, it's, it's that response. It's that response in suffering. You don't have to, you get endurance just by suffering. But you want Christian maturity. You respond to suffering with honest mourning before God saying, this is hard, and God, you're big, and I trust you. And we, go, we go to him. We, we take our grief to him. We may cry out. We may be broken. We may, may be really upset but we're honest with him. We're not fake. We're not plastic. We're not shallow. And we just repeatedly say, you're big and you're strong. I trust you. I don't get it. Help me trust you. And it's in those moments, I believe, that we can count it pure joy. It's when we see that he's big and he's strong and he's doing something that we don't understand. He's doing something we may not know, but we know his character. And it gives us hope that he's doing what is right. So I want to call you today, church. Are you suffering? Can I call you to consider it pure joy? Not as some fake plastic thing, but as an act of trust. God, I just trust you. Don't think joy is smiling and laughing and giggling your way through it. I want you to mourn with him, but I want you to consider the fact that he does this. I want you to consider the fact that this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. For all that suffering for, with joy and endurance, he endured that. He's worthy of worship for us. And if you're suffering right now, I want to encourage you to count it joy. And if you feel like you can't, count it joy. Let me remind you the good news of Jesus. He died on the cross and came back to life three days later, not only to forgive us our sins, but to give us brand new hearts. And if you don't feel like you can count it joy, don't force yourself, don't put a rubber band on your hand and pop yourself every time. Oh, I didn't think that was good. Pop, <laughs> right? Say, God, I need your help. I need, I need you to work in my heart where I actually consider this joy. I need you to help me trust you. I need you to help me see that you're big. And I'm going to need that reminder over and over and over and over and over again. And I will come back to you 
every time I doubt, saying, I need you to help me. Help me consider this joy. Help me to do more than just adore. Help me to go all the way to maturity in this. Because listen up, church. You may be in a moment of suffering right now, but it's not your last one. It's going to come again and again and again and again and again and again until we finish this race. So let's get maturity out of it by the power and grace of Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I'm going to guide us through a moment of response right now. This is a time for you to do business with God. Is there something he said to you? Something he called you to? Give you a few ways you can respond. One of them is, would you just worship God and consider how awesome Jesus was at enduring trials and suffering? He's worthy of worship for that. Worship him for enduring all the way to the end. Maybe for you right now, you're suffering. I don't know what trial you're going through. It may be small things, it may be tragic things. Maybe, maybe you're suffering for being a follower of Jesus at work. I don't know, maybe it's lost loved one or bad medical stuff or marriage, whatever. Listen, in, in this moment, you you doubt whether or not God is good. I, I just want to encourage you to, to confess that to him and ask him to help. Maybe you're struggling with trusting him in this process. You're scared, you're afraid, you're frustrated, whichever one. Did you just ask him to help you trust? Trust him. Maybe you want out. This fire has been too hot for too long and, and you feel like you've gotten endurance. So would you pray you would ask him to help you endure all the way to maturity? Don't ask him to help you not waste your suffering. Maybe for you, Enduring isn't the problem, you're tough. Trusting, I guess I trust. But when you move to the part of considering it pure joy, man, I don't like it. Listen, can I just tell you that's why we need Jesus? If you're having trouble considering your suffering joy because of the work that Jesus is doing. I, I just want to ask you to ask him to help you. None of us can produce this on our own. That's why Jesus had to die. We need new hearts. In a moment, I'm going to pray. Um, I want you to know if you need to have more time with God, if you need to speak with a pastor about anything, we'll all be down front at the conclusion of our service. Listen, we'd love to pray with you, listen to you, remind you how good God is and how strong he is. We need to walk with you. We'll walk with you. If you speak with one of us, we'll be down front into the service. You pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, all of us have tasted suffering in one way or another. 
some of us here have, have tasted very deep and dark and painful in what feels like trials that have gone on forever. And God, we confess it is hard. It is, it sometimes it is really hard to trust you. We don't understand. We don't know what you're doing. Our hearts are upset about it. We confess that. But God, you said you would help us. And so we're asking for help. And I pray that you would help us to count it joy. I pray you would help us to see that you're doing something bigger in our lives. You're refining us and strengthening us and molding us. God, I pray you would give us grace to trust you, to consider it joy. I pray you would give us grace to endure all the way to maturity. God, we, we need help for that. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I am uh, very grateful that we get to even have time to talk about a God that, that, that's that big and that strong and that kind. As I want to remind you, if you speak on the passage, we'll be down front. If you're visiting, you brought a guest, we would also love to meet you and actually just put a name to a face of the people that visited. We hope you have a great week and we will see you next week.